The year is 1197 and the long night has begun. When darkness falls, monsters walk the streets and alleys of the cities, congregating to plot and scheme. Fearing fire, the cross, and the lupines of the wild, the elder Cainites nonetheless seek to guide and control human civilization through centuries-old plots, while the younger vampires scrabble for power, influence, and prestige. Welcome to the world of Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to episode 28 of the World of Dark Ages podcast, where we go through the Dark Ages line of books and talk about each of them, both in terms of history and as gaming books. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. So, we have our fifth patron on Patreon. Thank you very much and welcome, D. Bink. Uh, this means that we'll soon be posting examples of a script on Patreon. Also, today, as in the day of recording, is my birthday. So today's a good day. Uh, Yay, happy for you, birthday. Peter. Thank you. <laughs> so what about you? Uh, well, I, uh, uh, I I had to compensate my bookwormishness, uh, bookwormishness from, from last week. So uh, the, the last week from the day of recording, I went out machine gun <laughs> shooting. Um, with with the home guard, so I, I, I that that felt nice. It's it's always nice to to spend taxpayers' monies by uh, by uh, ballistic interference. Ah, what uh, what machine gun did you shoot? Uh, it's the in in Swedish. It's it's just called a machine gun 58, but it's it's the FNM, ah. um, the, the Belgian one, which is it's it's a heavy son of a bitch. I prefer the Russian PKM. Uh, that I used when I was in the Finnish military, but uh, yeah, it's it's still fun to shoot stuff. Yeah, yeah, I can I can well imagine the few times I've been been out shooting guns, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. But let's go back to a time when gunpowder wasn't even in Europe yet. Uh, the book we're looking at today is Under the Black Cross and not Bitter Crusade, as I managed to uh, to say last time. And it's the last book in the first edition of the Dark Ages line being set in the years 1212 to 1225. It's written by Dan Budge and Anthony Reagan and developed by Philip R. Boole. As always, we start with the cover and well, where to start? It looks a lot more like a fantasy cover, something for D and D or Warhammer fantasy. Give me your comments. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty much what I was about to say. Uh, and in, in a way, it's kind of fitting since, uh, especially the last chapter of this uh, campaign is is kind of. Uh, if it feels like a, a Sylvanian um, <clears throat> kind of of uh, uh, what what do you call the the undead counts in in Warhammer? The yeah, the uh, the, the Fonzarovich is no no oh, sorry that's from Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Castines, yeah, the von Castines. That's Castines. Yeah, yeah. It's, but but again, uh, vampire and Warhammer influenced each other quite a bit, so it's it's quite fitting. Uh, but. There is we we have the the forces of of uh, uh, main well not protagonists but main antagonists of of Jorgen and Rostovich fighting each other and and so you have these on the one hand kind of kind of actually appropriate um, medieval knights and men at arms wearing chainmail and and fighting with shields uh, and then you have I'm assuming they're supposed to be war ghouls but they look more like Warhammer Mutants actually was was what I was thinking, and I think yeah. they really missed something there because I I think you're right. They're supposed to be the the Schlachter war ghouls, and 
I've when when you're looking at Schlachter Warghuls, they're supposed to be scary. These guys aren't scary. They're almost a bit silly looking, but they, it's not like I'm thinking, okay, these are monstrous creatures. It's more like yeah, they yeah. could be Nosferatu. Uh, yeah, or, or just some kind of, I don't know, weird alien frog monster thingy. Because as you, as you said, it, there's nothing really scary. No, no, it's, it's, I think that is really a missed opportunity. You know, I would have preferred them to be a lot more human looking, but with just enough yeah. changes that you can go, okay, that, that's, that's unpleasant. Because that's really what I want from the Tsumish, not going all out uh this is is uh gross and and stuff but more like yeah you can see that these were once humans but no longer because that is scary yeah and and you have an example of that later on when they they mentioned that in in the very first chapter actually when they mentioned that one of of uh the ghouls of of a Tsumichi character looks basically human but he has no mouth which is just kind of a subtle thing to do but it's still really yeah creepy. exactly because and that um, happens in a western court where you're not used to Tsumish fleshcraft so just the fact yeah. that someone arrives and it's not that their mo- mouth has been sewn shut or anything it's not there that is just a subtle yeah. touch but but yeah except for that the uh the armor that Rostovich is wearing if you ignore the the silly little bat wings <laughs> on his yeah. helmet uh he he actually is wearing kind of an uh, uh, somewhat historical armor, but again a few centuries too too early. So so he, because a lot of the kind of flutings and uh, almost winged themes on or or the kind of uh, how to describe it, the kind of the, the wavy yeah. um, motifs or, or shape of of his shoulder armor uh, that's very much some of the styles of of fifteenth century armor. Uh, but but yeah, it's it's a bit too early, and I don't know. I feel a bit, I, I, I feel a bit for the poor for the poor Teutonic knight Jorgen because he's supposed to like be the epitome of of a knight, and apparently he can only afford chainmail, and he's uh, fighting this this armor clad uh, brute from from the fiends, and the fiend is is wearing better armor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is. So I I can understand if he's yeah. Uh, and what's this fascination with putting sawtooth on on swords and everything? Uh, but yeah, <laughs> as for the yeah. interior art in general, I think it's it's very good. Uh, I especially like the NPC pictures because I think they managed to avoid having having them look like eighties goth club goers. So already we have a yeah point yeah. There. I, I agree with that. It's yeah, it's um, some some of the uh, some of the the art looks kind of like they they dressed someone up and just just painted them or, or drawn them, but it's it's not the you don't have the really exaggerated fantasy uh, style of of dresses or or uh, clothes in general. We we don't at least from the character portraits we don't actually see that much of the clothes, but but what we do see, uh, there's one on page 93, which uh, I think she's supposed to be Alexia, one of the yeah. trainer, and she she has a kind of a nice, simple outfit, which would be appropriate a couple of hundred years later. <laughs> but, uh, but but again, it's it, it as long as it's not fantasy or, and and you don't see the kind of the 
buxom beer maiden barmaid kind of outfits. I'm I'm quite yeah. Happy the weapons um, and armor picture. Oh, I, sorry. I also, uh, go ahead. I, no, no, I, I just wanted to say that I also noticed on, on page 52 that there is um, a uh, a Muslim character who's, uh, she's she's wearing uh, kind of the traditional uh, dress with, with a turban. Uh, for some reason, she's carrying a dagger strapped to her arm. But what she does have that I think is a nice touch is that she's wearing a straight sword yeah. that is obviously not uh, of, of European origin, uh, but still very much fits the character. Yeah, and, it it, uh, and it looks uh, quite a lot, I would say, like a, a Berber sword from North Africa. Uh, if you look at, at mm. the, the grip and the, the cross guard, uh, it, it looks actually yeah. uh, a bit like the one that you own, which, if I recall correctly, is a, a North African sword, right? Yeah, that's that's a Tuareg sword. So it's uh, it, it's yeah, I guess it's kind of North African. Uh, but but yeah, it, it has some similarities to it. But but again, uh, the fact that uh, straight swords were quite popular even among the uh, the non-Christian uh, parts of the world. Yeah, so that's that's really good. Um, I I also you know love that picture. Um, and like I was about to say, the weapons and armor um, pictured here, they're varying historical accuracy as per usual. Um, there is another uh, picture, I, I think it's um, the, the cover art uh, for um, the third chapter, I can't quite remember, but uh, where you once again have Eitzemish in this uh, almost gothic plate, which is very much out of, of style, but otherwise it's it's decent. Uh, there are also some maps, uh, and they're somewhat useful, but the first one is labeled Germany, and then it has part of it marked as yeah. the Holy Roman Empire, and it really should be in reverse, because yeah. the Kingdom of Germany is but one part of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, so <laughs> yeah, so that, exactly. that missed something. And then there's uh, a map of the Siebenburgen area, which uh, is used in the third chapter, but it doesn't really give us any idea of uh, how this relates to the rest of Hungary. Now, obviously, you can just look at a modern map and you will see where this is in relations to Hungary. But maybe if they'd zoomed out a little bit, given that, that at this point, Transylvania is part of, of Hungary, just so that you know where it is in relation to uh, the capital and really the center of power in the nation. But, I mean, it's it's good to have maps and especially the, the map of... Uh, I can never figure out if it's pronounced Acre or Acre, but uh, basically where Chapter 2 takes place, that's a really nice map to have. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I agree. Uh, again, it's the simple kind of map. It shows what you need to know, and, and you can just make up the rest as you go along if you need to. Yes. Or, or you can use it as a basis, like if you really want to detail every single um, alleyway and, and gate in the wall, then you can just start out with the map that you get in the book and just build from yeah. there. So we start with the introduction, and this one's pretty long as intros go, but that's because it involves a lot of information about the three scenarios in the Chronicle, as well as locations, important NPCs, background on the Teutonic order, order and so on. It's a lot of really good information that helps um, run the Chronicle, though there is some repetition of this in later chapters, so I think they could have tightened this up a little bit. Also, the Chronicle is supposedly set up so that the characters can belong to either side of the central 
conflict, either the Ventru Lord Jürgen or the Tsimish Vladimir Rustovich. However, the intro only gives us information on Lord Jürgen's side of things. Um, but what did you think of the intro? Yeah, I I liked a lot of it. Uh, you you do get some historical uh, information that is uh, at least it can be useful. Uh, and and for example, they they mentioned the Magdeburg Laws, uh, which was basically uh, how how towns and cities uh, were to be uh, well governed, basically, or or at least what laws would apply to them. And and it was kind of the uh, a standard uh, set of laws that if well you could follow the Magdeburg laws and and this if, if you're gonna set up a new city this is basically how you can do it um, and what what I think is interesting is if if you actually look at what the Magdeburg laws uh, what they kind of govern and, and uh, or uh, have rules about a lot of the things have to do with trade yeah. because that was what it was important like if you're going to trade with other cities. Uh, especially now that the the Hanseatic League and the, those kinds of of trade, not trade unions, but trade uh, yeah, alliances, u- unions to pop up. of of um, more or less free cities. Yeah, uh, but but also the kind of like how trade between different areas uh, are set up. It's 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 quite important to figure out how to deal with this because money makes the world go round, and it's true unfortunately true now and it was unfortunately true back then um and and it's also like what i find interesting with these kinds of laws is that it's uh modern people kind of have this idea of of um equality uh in in front of the law that everyone should be be equals in the eyes of the law but back in the medieval times you could have uh like you, you, you could have different laws in different cities, and in those cities, different people could be uh, treated differently according to those laws. Uh, and sometimes you could have like, well, if I'm a person from this area and I arrive in this city, then I could basically claim that the laws of my home city applies yeah. to me and and stuff like that. So, so there's a lot of opportunities for. Uh, for political intrigue, basically, or or just like if if you want to play up the the uh, bureaucracy of things, then then uh, these different laws um, is is a really good way to do it. Uh, in Sweden, for example, we had different laws for cities and the countryside. Basically. Yeah, it was a very important thing for especially merchants who traveled to have rules in other cities that they were governed by their own city laws. For example, um, Lübeck also had the Lübeck laws, which spread throughout the Hanseatic League. And they fought hard Mm. to have German merchants be under the Lübeck laws in places like uh, Bern in Norway, London, um, even Visby. At some point, they they tried to say, well, well, we're... Lübeck merchants so even though we are in Sweden the the Lübeck laws should apply to us and this was something that happened because you had these as they were called free imperial cities which Magdeburg is so instead of being under the rule of a local noble who would then be the ultimate arbiter of the laws they suddenly found themselves answerable only to the emperor who couldn't be bothered 
to make individual laws for cities. So as you said, they made their own laws, the Magdeburg law, the Lübeck laws, that then spread throughout, uh, especially the Holy Roman Empire, to the various cities there. Um, and that's something that I think vampires would be really interested in, in involving themselves with. Yeah, exactly. If especially if they can control how and to where the, the laws are spread and and what is actually included in um, in those laws, because for example, uh, a, a ventru uh, lord or prince would probably like if if they have a, s- a certain feeding restriction, uh, say that they could only feed from I, I don't know uh, Bohemian people, then it would probably be in their interest to uh, establish kind of like, yeah, well, in, in certain corner uh, quarters of, of the cities should be reserved for, should be allowed um, for Bohemians to, to reside in so they would have a steady supply of, of blood. Basically. Yeah, and obviously, like, this whole idea with independent cities originally, from what I understand, started with the emperor wanting money so cities could basically pay him to become free, but then he quite quickly realized, or a succession of emperors quite quickly realized, that if a city was allowed to run its own affairs um, and only was only answerable to the emperor and thus only paid taxes to the emperor, suddenly you had cities exploding in wealth and size, uh, not so much because people were born in the cities, because people actually there were actually more people dying in cities than were being born but so many people moved into the cities to get uh, a share of that wealth and that also sets up this whole idea of the Siebenburgen that happens in chapter three where you had the um, Hungarian king inviting Germans to come and create cities in a relatively underdeveloped area and then bring this German Pro, uh, pro, uh, progress and um, trade. They were also more advanced when it came to things like mining. They had more advanced farming techniques. Mm, yeah. So the, the general idea was <clears throat> if we give land to the Germans, then they are going to bring prosperity to our country and then who cares about the locals because they weren't Hungarians anyway. So he just told the local Valachians that, well, now you're under German, uh, well, rule of of the the local Germans who are answerable to the Hungarians. Um, so, it's it's a rather fascinating uh, thing. All of this. Yeah, and and it's a very good way to, especially for for the emperor or the the kind of centralized power to uh, divide and conquer uh, in a way because. Uh, in a lot of countries, you always have the conflict between the nobility and the ruling monarch, and so and and of course, basically everyone gets their money and, and influence and power from the land they control, and so if you can take away control over a city from the baron or or the noble person ruling the area, and basically making the that city uh, a subject directly to to the monarch or the emperor or the king then not only will you make yourself stronger, but you will also weaken the uh, the noble person and which which makes them less likely to try to influence your your imperial uh, rulings in in other matters. So 
so yeah, there's there's a lot of politics yeah. going on. Uh, and speaking of politics, chapter one takes place at Lord Jürgen's court in Magdeburg. Um, for those of you who don't know, Magdeburg at this time is one of the great cities north of the Alps. It is uh, in central, what, what today would be considered probably central Germany. And it was one of the important trade cities and also one of the important political cities. And Lord Jürgen has moved in here. He's taken over the city. And once again, they do something that I really love uh, because they say that there was a Bruja who claimed Magdeburg as his territory as a prince, but then a fire happened in, I think it was 1168, which killed him off, allowing Lord Jürgen to take over the city uncontested. And this is a real world event. There was actually a big fire in Magdeburg. And I just love when these books take real world events and use them to further the shall we say non-real world story so that's a a really plus here uh now here in magdeburg he's accepting fealty and offers of alliances from other canines before heading into hungary to try and take territory from the tzimish the representative from vladimir rustovich he uh, she's there to give rustovich's answer to the implied challenge there are tremere present a group of ravnos entertainers and at one point a pack of powerful gangrel make an appearance to say that the territory that lord jürgen and rustovich will be fighting in belongs to them and they're going to kill anyone who intrudes and finally we also have muka vukos there looking to uh, set up a plan he has in order to gain territory for himself and for the Obertus revenants that are his allies. So it's a real big melting pot of of politics in a way that I think is, is really cool for a vampire story. However, the main story here concerns a beautiful sword given to Lord Jürgen as a sign of an alliance from the powerful Toreador of France. And the sword turns out to be a fake, though most people think it was switched with a fake to scupper the alliance. And so... Uh, the the meat of the scenario is um, it expects the characters to get involved in this one way or another and to be the one to recover the true sword and figure out at least part of who did it and why. I think there's a lot of similarities between this scenario and the first scenario of Bitter Crusade because we're at a court where the characters are among the lowest mm. of the totem pole. You have a crime that's yeah. being committed and the characters are the ones to solve it. However, I think uh, this is done better and smoother than Bitter Crusade with less railroading and less chance for the characters to ruin the setup through what would be completely logical actions by their <laughs> the characters. Um, of course, it's important for the storyteller to ensure the characters created are willing to involve themselves, um, that it would make sense for them to get involved in this. And that's one of my few complaints here. The suggestions given to the storyteller on what kind of characters the players could make, it's too broad. You you could end up with them creating characters that have very little reason to involve themselves in the central part of the scenario. Yeah, and, and I think that's kind of one of the reasons why the, the storyteller need to... or, or the, basically the gaming group needs to kind of talk over uh, if, if they're starting a new uh, campaign that like what it's going to be about, what kind of characters fit and uh, because I, I'm guessing that you could probably make most kinds of character work but it would probably take a bit of, of work from the storyteller and the, 
uh, and and the players themselves basically kind of of making up reasons or or uh, finding out reasons why they would want to uh, involve themselves with with the plot of the story but but yeah i agree that it's it's kind of like it's kind of assumed that that the characters are going to play along and and in a way it's like yeah because otherwise we won't be playing the game <laughs> but but as you say it's it's a bit um i i think i think with a bit of i i don't want to say stricter guidelines but better guidelines it would probably be a lot easier to involve all of the characters uh, in in a more natural yeah, way. Yeah, I think this is a problem that we generally see in the scenarios uh, chronicles made at this time, uh, Bitter Crusade, Clash of Wills, this one, and also we haven't covered Transylvania Chronicles yet, yet but it's there as well. Mm. The, um, the writers want to give players as much freedom as possible to create whatever character they want, but this impacts the way that the game is played. I mean, if you're uh, playing Dungeons and Dragons, then in most campaigns, any character class will work. However, when you're yeah. playing this, I mean, if you're um, if you're playing uh, a certain type of game, then certain clans might be a problem, or certain backgrounds might ruin the game we talked about in bitter crusade that if you if you made a kateri where everyone was from venice then a lot of things in the first scenario is just basically going to collapse and i i think it's it's i can understand wanting to give players freedom but on the other hand i have no problem with limiting what you can make i mean probably the best example is uh king arthur's pendragon the role-playing game where the basic setup is you play male knights of um, what they call Simric, which is basically English heritage, who are Chris. Uh, you, you can choose not to be Christian, but generally you're Christian. And that's it. And it works. So in some games, it works to have a lot of freedom in what you want to create. But in some games, it's probably better to just say, no, you can't play this because that's not the way that this campaign is going to work. Yeah, it's exactly. This this campaign isn't uh, isn't designed for or meant for those kinds of characters. It's it's basically you you can't bring uh, a bike to uh, a car. Race, yeah, exactly. Basically. Um, um, and and I'm I'm thinking also um, going back to to kind of a discussion we had in the Facebook group about sample characters in. Uh, in in well, the the clan, what, what they call the Libella yeah. Sanguinis books, where you had example characters, I think this would be a really good example uh, or or a good place to have example characters. Like these are the kind of of uh, neonate uh, characters that would fit in his chronicle, and then you could have like the uh, the Ventru Squire or the Tremere Schemer or or whatever, so you could kind of get inspiration. Uh, for what kind of characters would suit this um, this campaign, and if nothing else, you basically have a bunch of pre-made uh, characters that that would fit in, uh, and and of course you can always change the pre-made characters as well. But but uh, we we both are are kind of um, of the opinion that that the uh, sample characters are not not necessarily a waste of space in the books, but they 
it's kind of hard to see what what purpose they serve. And so if you, you of course you could have them in the clan books as well, but but I think that they would fit much better in in campaign books to kind of show um, or, or at least hint what kind of characters fit that that particular campaign. Yeah, exactly. Um, a few other points. Rustovich's emissary is accompanied by Vlashi, if I'm pronouncing that correct, Revenants. And I don't recall us hearing about this Revenant family before. So even if they are in another book, it might be good to get some basic information on this Revenant family. Do you remember them from any other book we've covered? Oh, no, but that doesn't necessarily mean that... That they aren't. Uh, we haven't no. encountered. So, so either but, they. But yeah, I no. Now that you mention it, they, they didn't. Yeah, it, it wasn't kind of like when when you mention um, Vikos and Obertus, It's kind of like yeah, those those guys again. Yeah. Uh, with these characters, no, I, I don't. So now, now that you mention it, I I don't. Yeah. Think so heard either they should have them. they should have told us they are in this book, or if as we are thinking here they haven't mentioned them before, then they mm. should have given us some more information about them. Also, the sword yeah. that is central to the plot is called a broadsword. Yeah. We've mentioned a few mm. times how that's the wrong terminology for the time period. We also get a picture of it on page 35. And while it's a perfectly historical depiction of a medieval arming sword, it's about 200 years or so out of date. It is very much yeah. an arming sword from the end of the, the Middle Ages. Uh, but it does look very much like yeah, that type of sword. It's a, yeah, and it's it's a very Iberian style of, of sword. We mentioned uh, it previously. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, again, going back to, to what artists kind of draw upon, you, you can basically buy the cheap kind of... of tourist souvenir swords that looks kind of like that if you go to my Spain. my wife has one uh, of those <laughs> yeah so so it might be that yeah we need to we need to draw something so let's let's just get something we draw um speaking of that sword uh like one one of the ways that they figure out that it's a fake is that jürgen who is a vampire uh which means that he's most likely stronger than a mortal he uh he, he pulls the sword from its, its scabbard and slams it down into the stone floor. And when it, it kind of bends and chips, um, he, he declares that he, it's it's a fake sword. And if if you did that to any kind of sword, uh, what? especially one that is supposed to be as highly decorative. Yes. As, as if you this did it with, with a perfectly made modern high carbon steel sword, you yeah. might not, but a twelfth, sorry, thirteenth century mild steel sword. I mean, I could chip that on a stone floor, no problem. Yeah, yeah, it's that's that's not how you treat swords. So, so of course it's going to be. And and what I also find kind of humorous is, and now we're really deep into the nerd <laughs> rabbit hole, but but it's it's described that. Uh, the fake has no better quality than than an ordinary soldier sword, and and yeah, ordinary soldier swords could be uh, of lower quality, of course, than than something made especially for a nobleman. But the thing is that if you're going to have a sword made for actually fighting, you don't want a bunch of of um, gemstones and and only 
uh, expensive inlays in it because that's that's like I don't know driving a Ferrari into the Battle of the Bulge. Yeah, you you could probably take your really expensive car and drive in there, but it's going to be ruined really quickly. And so, do you really do, can you really afford it? And and this kind of having dress swords and swords for actual battle, this goes into way up into uh, into the 19th, 19th and even early 20th century where you have uh, British officers in, in India who basically have the really fancy dress swords for when they're on parade or, or if it's a state dinner or anything. And then they have much simpler swords going out to actually fight. Uh, so... I would assume that this sword is supposed to be uh, one of the more dressy swords. And, and we do have some really fine examples um, from this period and later on. Uh, for example, there are uh, swords that have uh, coral hilts, yeah. <laughs> which looks really fancy, but is, is kind of worthless. If like It's, it's going to break if you actually smash someone with it. Um, or slash, rather. Uh, and, and so it's, it's kind of weird that this... I, again, it's it's like giving someone a, a fine pair of dancing shoes, and then the person complains that their feet gets wet when they run into a muddy field. Because yeah, that's not what it, they're for. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I do think that this chapter nicely sets up the overarching conflict of the book, and it does a mm. good job of presenting an interesting courtly event, get the characters involved, and sort of presenting the major players so all in all yeah. i think this is a a good chapter and could be an, an interesting uh scenario to play i have actually played this book i just don't really remember much about it and that's not <laughs> that, that's not uh yeah. to say anything negative about the book or the game master who ran it uh it's just I have a really poor memory in general. I do remember that I played an Einherjer Gangrel, <laughs> but ah, cool. but not yeah. much more than that. Um, yeah, and and speaking of of compliments on page uh, twenty eight, we have the the Timichi, uh, emissary with her two ghoul bodyguards, and except for the kind of goth uh, color that that um, the emissary. Uh, with her name Lady Cara, I think her name is. Uh, yeah, she she has this very uh, almost um, Elvira, Queen of the Damned kind of color. <laughs> uh, but the rest of her dress, and especially the uh, the the dress or the, the clothes of uh, her uh, her bodyguards, are really nice, and they, they look appropriate. They have helmets that kind of fit the time period. Uh, they they have weapons that aren't covered with uh, skulls or anything other weird stuff like that, and uh, they have one of them has kind of a fur-brimmed coat, which is uh, at least to me feel very Transylvanian or kind of Eastern European. So so yeah, it's it's a really nice picture, um, and of course one of them doesn't have a mouth. Because, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's, well done. Fucking <laughs> so. Yeah. Moving on to chapter two, this takes place in the Second Kingdom of Jerusalem during the Fifth Crusade. Um, if you want to check out why it's called the Second uh, Kingdom of Jerusalem and why the capital is in Acre or Acre, still don't know how to pronounce that, um, mm. rather than Jerusalem, uh, just visit Wikipedia. It's actually quite an interesting uh, bit of history there. But the Crusaders, the mortal Crusaders, they travel to, I'm just going to call it 
Acre from now on. They travel to yeah, <laughs> to Acre, but because there's an aura of true faith around the city, Canaanites cannot enter. This is speculated to be because of the presence of a piece of the true cross brought uh, there by the Apostle St. Paul. And this, again, this is a real-world legend, and once again, I love that they're weaving this into the story, uh, you know, using real-world stories and events. Now, Acre uh, actually has a prince called Etienne de Faubacher, and he's a Ravnos, of all things, a member of the Bashirite bloodline, who are all Christians. Their founder, Bashir, claims to have met Jesus and talked with him. He, quote-unquote, rules Acre from outside, and his sire has been telling him to find a way through the aura for many years to no avail, so things aren't going well for him. The first act of this chapter involves the characters getting set up, meeting the prince, getting an idea of the politics, and getting involved in the Christian versus Muslim conflict that's also brewing among vampires. I should probably mm. mention the reason they're going here is because the king of Hungary has decided to go on crusade, so uh, Lord Jürgen wants some representatives along, and um, Vladimir Rustovich does as well, um, and it's, it feels a bit disjointed, but I'll get on to that later um so it all culminates in a tournament and while i love me a tournament which were becoming more and more popular among most this time there are some weird things going on firstly the prince announces that all actions are afoot since the knight makes the ground too treacherous for horses well this makes sense i mean nighttime does make ground treacherous for horses it seems that the writers have yeah. forgotten that without animalism a specific merit or a ghoul horse Canines cannot ride, so it would make more sense that all combat is afoot because most vampires wouldn't be able to fight mounted. Um, so that, that that's a bit of an yeah, oversight. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that when it's thematically appropriate, most vampires seem to be able to to ride. Anyways. Yeah, but and then then there's yeah, the the javelin toss, which is <laughs> odd because at this this point. You wouldn't expect people to be trained with a javelin. Archery would make a lot more sense. Javelin, Javelins are quite rare in the 13th century. So uh, why would you have a javelin toss rather than, say, an archery or crossbow competition? Um, the whole thing ends with the aura that surrounds Acre falling and everyone scrambling to get in, find a haven, feed, and establish domain. So apart from the oddities of the tournament, I think this first act of the chapter does a decent job of setting up the rest of the chapter. Yeah, I I agree. They uh, they have a scene which is basically scripted, where a very pious Nosferatu uh, decides to uh, he he wants to test his faith by getting close enough to the city to to see if um, if he if he will be allowed in or if he'll he, he'll be burned by the the aura of it, and of course, kind of to to warn off the players. He he's, he gets destroyed by the holiness of the site, uh, but yeah, I I agree with the kind of disjointedness of the whole. Like we we have the first and the last chapter of this chronicle uh, or, or campaign set in basically in the middle of Europe, but then we have this kind of side quest down to Jerusalem, which. I, I don't know. It it feels kind of like I I do like the fact that they included the Teutonic Knights because they they were really cool and they really started to get into power um, at this time. Uh, and I'll probably speak more about them in in a few moments. But but it's it's kind of 
it, it for me it feels really weird to include the kind of like let's go to the de- desert and find holy uh, artifacts yeah episode uh, of, of this it campaign. feels like the writers um, really wanted to do something with with acre and this whole area and yeah. so it got jammed in here um it's just i mean you could make it work but it yeah it comes out of left field yeah and 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 i rather like the, the kind of idea of this chapter is is really kind of cool with the whole uh, having the, the Prince of Dirt, as he is called, because he can't have a court out uh, or in the city, so he has to have it outside in this huge crusader camp, basically. Uh, that's that's kind of a cool idea. Uh, but I'd rather have it like its own story rather than to just cram it into uh, this other conflict between Jorgen and Rastovich, which... Uh, is a completely different setting. Yeah, they managed to pull um, some threads back to the whole conflict, but it's 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 very tenuous. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, what, what I did like about it is, uh, again, uh, or uh, I, I had other reasons to go into the Teutonic Knights, but, but I'll just mm-hmm. do it here. But uh, Because uh, at this point, you have... Uh, the Teutonic Knights, and, and you get a lot of information on them in the introductory uh, chapter, uh, which is nice. And uh, besides the Knights Hospitallers and the Knights Templar, they were kind of like the big yeah. uh, holy order. You, you had a bunch of smaller holy orders all over the place, uh, but they they were one of the most successful, especially after... Uh, it was especially considering that uh, the Templars were destroyed <laughs> in 1312, uh, and the, the they they started out as many other uh, orders did uh, as more of a kind of a um, uh, to to help out uh, Crusaders and the ill. So they, it started out as basically a hospital in I think it was Jerusalem, and uh... then. As it turned, Jerusalem, or was it in I think, Acre? I think actually it or, was in Acre, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, yeah, well, but, but anyways, they started out as a hospital, uh, tending to the sick and wounded pilgrims, and, and then they kind of figure out that, well, we're going to need to protect the pilgrims as well, and then it turned into a, a militant order. Um, and, and to kind of show, uh, also to kind of show the difference between the modern society or modern Europe and and how things look back then. Uh, this this was basically uh, a private military contractor yeah. uh, that got big enough and it got you know, enough state support, especially from the Pope, that they could uh, start their own nation state mm. uh, or at least their, their own country because the, the kind of ideas of nation states that we have today wasn't really around back then so so you have uh, and and they actually managed to get huge tracts of lands in uh, in eastern europe and i think we do actually get a, a map of uh, of some of their holdings but basically most of the baltic regions and northern poland uh, belong to to this uh, to this holy order uh, so at the same time as you have actual countries like England and Denmark and Sweden and the Holy Roman Empire, which is a different chapter in and of itself, you you also have uh, 
basically just a bunch of soldiers who have decided that no, th- this is our territory now, and and we're not gonna pay taxes to anyone, and and uh, we're 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 just gonna we we rule this place. Yeah, didn't now. they at one point uh, try they, to take Gotland as well? They they actually did oh, take yeah, yeah. Gotland because in, in yeah in uh, in the 1390s there was a bunch of pirates, um, the Victual brothers who uh, used Gotland as a base and uh, in in return for throwing out, them out basically they they invaded uh, the island to to kind of uh, make put things in order uh, and they they were there for around 10 years and then they realized that this is for for us it's it's financially not a good idea because it's cost a lot of money to to uh, keep this place, but uh, the Gotlandish people and especially the um, the city of Visby really liked them because they kept the pirates yeah. away, so trade was prospering. Uh, so when the Teutonics actually decided to leave, uh, the the people of Visby were kind of like, "Are you sure you can stay just for a few <laughs> more years? Come on!" Uh, so it's it's an interesting case of the occupied people. Uh, begging the occupiers yeah. to stay on, um, but but yeah, this kind of shows what kind of of geographical power they had because, um, and I'm oversimplifying this a bit now, but but the Knight Templars they did have chapter houses all over Europe, but they didn't control lands in the same no, way. No, not at all. Uh, they they had economical powers because they they had uh, uh, they they lent people money and and did stuff like that. Uh, and the night hospitallers, especially later on, they uh, they got first they stayed in Cyprus and and Rhodes in Greece, and then of course in Malta. Uh, but they didn't have the same kind of geographical uh, domain as the Teutonic Knights did, which again is kind of impressive that that you have uh, an an NGO or a private military contractor that basically runs a country. Um, which which is quite different from today. Yeah, and it ties into Lord Jürgen's plans quite well because he's established yeah. his own um, vampire order inside the Teutonics, and he is now doing the whole nation building. And the Teutonic order is, yeah, exactly. is still a thing. I've been to their uh, headquarters, which is in Vienna in Austria, and they have an yeah. awesome museum. I've seen they have in there the original um, papal declaration making them an official order the seals on that Mm -hmm. piece of parchment there are some seriously big seals there and some seriously impressive ones so yeah the bigger the seal the more the more yeah so people if you're ever in vienna that is that is one place you really should um should visit now this actually also uh the the scene with the um with the tournament I, I have my only memory of playing this campaign from there because I remember I created this um, Einherjer Gangrel so powerful that when there was the general melee and we were paired up against ghouls, he basically took down one ghoul per strike. He was using a Dane axe, a two-handed axe. He was a berserker. So every time mm. he hit a fully armored ghoul, that person would go down. So that's the only thing I remember from that. Anyway, Act Two. So you did you didn't go up against any Teutonic knights? Then? Uh, no, because before that happened, yeah. the aura fell, and then 
everyone started charging ah. towards Acre or Acre, and my character was basically looking around, going, "Well, I have no one else to fight." Um, <laughs> so yeah. Act Two, uh, and another, just another small thing about the Teutonics uh, again, because as you have different cultures uh, in different countries, you also kind of got. Uh, a certain kind of culture in the Teutonic Order, which the most obvious thing is that uh, they, for, for some reason, they liked octagonal towers. And so if you look at a lot of their old fortresses uh, and the churches that they built, uh, they will have an octo uh, octagonal tower uh, somewhere around it. There's there's a church in, in Visby, uh, which is a ruin now, but still quite an impressive ruin, uh, that is is in, built in this German style because even before they they invaded they had had kind of um, it, it was basically a, um, a hospice or I think it was supposed to be a, a leper house mm. actually or or a, a, so so it's it's kind of cool that if you go through Europe you can see in certain places where you have these octagonal towers and it. it, it even if it wasn't built by the uh, Teutonics, it might have been influenced by them because it's it's quite a distinct style. Yeah. So the second act is all about figuring out why the aura fell, and once it is it is determined that it's probably because someone removed the piece of the true cross, acquiring this powerful artifact. <clears throat> this introduces an old friend from Bitter Crusade, Gautier de Dampierre, who might be old but is still fighting against vampires. Which I think is kind of mm. cool. He's he's yeah. an interesting character. Prince Etienne finds himself in an unfortunate situation, being told that if he doesn't acquire the relic, his sire will replace uh, Etienne with his, that is, Etienne's blood brother as Prince of Acre. So Etienne begins making moves to become a vassal of Lord Jürgen, something Rustovich's allies don't want to happen. At the same time, a knight of the Order of Bitter Ashes the order that was presented in the Asian Knight, he gets involved also wanting the artifact. So it's assumed that the characters get involved in the hunt for the relic and that they are the ones to actually find Gautier, who's the one who's taken it out of its um, resting place, thus removing the aura, which is actually kind of an interesting thing. He's taking the piece of the True Cross in order to safeguard it from the evil vampires, and in doing so, he has made it so that yeah. the vampires can enter Acre. While the yeah. presentation is a bit confused at times, there are some great moments of politics where the characters are approached by various fractions and individuals and asked to take their side in this whole mess, including a helpful Setite who wants the characters to help steer the crusade towards Egypt because, well, that'll weaken the local Muslim vampires, which is something the Setites want. So, in, in general, this second act, I think it has some really interesting moments where the characters can really get to actually make some decisions that will affect how the game turns out. Yeah, I agree. And and speaking of the uh, of the Setite and, and Egypt, uh, again, tying back into historical events that, that actually happened uh, being or affecting, um, affecting vampire stuff. Uh, I don't know if it's if, if it's the fifth or the sixth crusade, but one of the crusades that take place just shortly after this actually was aimed at Egypt. So, uh, so, so again, it's it, it's not necessarily that the, the the player characters and the vampires are behind it, but it ties very nicely into real historical events. Yeah, exactly. So 
um, the whole thing sh- uh, ends up with either uh, Etienne, Prince Etienne, being replaced, or more likely him choosing to become a vassal of Lord Jürgen. And this is this once again it ties into the whole conflict, but. I'm kind of struggling to figure out what Lord Jürgen gets out of this in relations to his war against Rustovich. So once again, it, it feels a bit yeah. disconnected from the rest of the game. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I made a note in my notes that that weak story question mark, because again, it, it, it feels like it would make a much better story if it was its own story uh and and have like if you really want to tie it into uh to the conflict between Rostovich and Jürgen you could have uh representatives of those parties as kind of easter eggs rather than as you mentioned like what would Jürgen actually get out of this that would strengthen his position in Hungary because if if he gets involved down here that means he has to send troops and resources here that he could probably better use uh, in uh, against Rostovich on on his home turf basically so so yeah, I completely agree with that that it's it's a bit all over the place yeah chapter three is the end the final conflict or even showdown between Lord Jürgen and Vladimir Rostovich the king of Hungary has expelled the Teutonic order from Hungary for very good reason. He was afraid that they were basically going to turn Transylvania into their own private realm, which, as you have mentioned, was something that they were into doing. And this means that Lord Jürgen is under a lot of pressure and he's fighting to just get himself and his people out without getting killed. This is a relatively short chapter with some good and some bad things going on. In the beginning, Mm. the characters meet with a Tremere in a fishing village that then comes under attack by the Tsimish who use Greek fire to set the village ablaze. Now, I am cool with the Tsimish having retained knowledge of Greek fire, and the scene of the characters having to flee this inferno is pretty cool. It's quite cinematic, and it also really shows them that vampires aren't that immortal. If you're in a burning city, then you're in deep trouble. However, the writers seem to think that the characters will either need a boat or a ford to cross the river, forgetting that vampires can just walk on the bottom of a river to cross it. A good idea when you have a burning village at your back. So a a bit of a misstep there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and of course, you could always throw something in that... Uh, the the river is is too rapid so that you would be swept away yeah. and and bashed against rocks or something or or that uh, uh, the riverbed is too muddy so you would get stuck or anything but yeah it's it's a bit of a weird kind of like oh no we're drowning no we're not because we're vampires we don't breathe <laughs> um, uh, and and speaking of of other bad things the the picture on on page sixty two which again I think is supposed to be um, the forces of Jürgen facing off against the war ghouls of uh, Rostovich. The war ghouls look more like some kind of rabbit creature rather than something that is scary and impressive because they're big and furry and have really long ears. And and I I kind of snorted out loud. I didn't laugh out loud <laughs> when I saw this picture, but but it's come on, it's it's really silly. yeah. It's you have to. It's admit. a kind of what have you done to make these more effective warriors against yeah. the soldiers that you will be facing? So 
Yeah. Um, Rustovich's assault on Kronstadt, where Lord Jürgen has his headquarters, and which, incidentally, is the city that my character is the prince of in Transylvania Chronicles, uh, that assault <gasps> is pretty cool, with some real tactical and strategic mm. thought behind it. Uh, it cuts Lord Jürgen's forces off from the castle he used as his headquarters, and it forces him into a barren wilderness, which Rustovich knows is the main territory of the Gangrel from the first chapter. However, it is mentioned that Lord Jürgen makes his headquarters in Kronstadt in Bran Castle. However, Bran Castle wasn't built at this time. There was probably an mm. other ca- another castle at the location where Bran would uh, be erected uh, called Dietrichstein, but this is 25 kilometers outside of Kronstadt. There was a castle in Kronstadt at this time, which was a castle built by the Teutonic Order, so Lord Jürgen can be in a castle, just not Bran Castle. And I think the writers chose Bran Castle because it's very famous. It's considered sort of Dracula's castle, uh, but it's it's not in Kronstadt. Yeah. Um, there's also a glaring timing error during the assault on Kronstadt. It is mentioned in the text that night draws to an end, so Lord Jürgen decides to withdraw into the city. Then the night goes quiet for several hours. Then, only a few hours before dawn, there is another assault. So, yeah, how long is the night and how early did Lord Jürgen fall back? Yeah, exactly. I, I, well, they were the writers were clever enough to, to set this, uh, this part of the story in, in winter time. Uh, so you would there would probably be time enough for this really long night, but... But again, it's yeah, it, it's kind of weird that it's like, oh no, we must retreat because daylight is coming soon, and then and then we're gonna have a few hours of of quiet, and then there's gonna be yeah, yeah, I, I, I see yeah. your point. It doesn't really make um, sense. So Lord Jürgen and his forces are trapped in a wilderness with just a few buildings, and the Rustovich's plan is to let the Gangrel weaken those forces before fin- finishing them off. However, the Gangrel don't discriminate, and they attack both sides until Mukavukos offers a solution that might be acceptable to all. I think this scene does a wonderful job illustrating the danger, chaos, desperation and violence of this kind of battle, but there are a few issues. Now, chief among them is the fact that the action is all at night. So how are people actually seeing anything? As we've talked about before, fire doesn't produce that much light, so unless it takes place during the full moon on cloudless nights, a lot of people are going to have some real trouble. And sure, Clan Simish has auspics as a clan discipline, but the Ventru don't, and there are tons of ghouls involved. So they really didn't think that through. And speaking of disciplines, the Gangrel attack involves an admittedly really cool use of a rush of all sorts of animals, both to... Yeah. injure but also just to create chaos but the Tsimish have animalism too however it's never mentioned what effect this might have I mean sure they're surprised but given that they're probably going to be a bunch of, of old and powerful Tsimish surely they could do something there there's also the yeah well, oh, yeah sorry the, well, no go finish, finish okay. off and then I'll, I'll yeah there's jump. also yeah. the way Lord Jürgen is presented it seems the writers forgot he's a true because he handles problems with his sword and his retainers even in situations where presence or dominate would be the way to go especially they meet one gangrel inside this area they flee to and and if nothing else is done by the players then Lord Jürgen has his retainers just kill the gangrel because he's in his way but he is an old and powerful Ventru. Surely he could have used other disciplines to handle this situation much better. So, so that's a bit yeah. weird. 
Um, and we never uh, get to learn his feeding restriction, but at one point in order to illustrate the desperate straits that his troops are in, he's shown feeding from a helpless child, and it's mentioned he doesn't, you know, he doesn't enjoy doing this, but, I mean, what is his feeding restriction if if he can feed in a way he doesn't like doing, and, and he can feed on a helpless um, child? Yeah, I think I, I looked him up on the uh, on the White Wolf uh, wiki page, um, and I don't know. Did, they they do mention it there that he can only feed on prisoners of war. Okay. So it so he could probably do it, and that would make sense. But uh, yeah, it's kind of weird that they don't mention it in this. Yeah. Uh, so the last. Yeah, but but yeah. So the last thing I wanted to mention is. Uh, of, of the things that I thought was a bit problematic here. There's the matter of character allegiances. In the first scenario, mm. it's mentioned that the characters can be either vassals of Lord Jürgen, independence involved somehow, or spies for Rustovich. This chapter tries to keep the spies thing going, but the way it's written, it makes little sense and would likely require the storyteller to either do some railroading or change a lot of things if the characters were really working for Rustovich. Yeah, uh, I I agree with that. Uh, going back to what you said about uh, animalism and and uh, the Tzimich, they do mention that uh, a lot of the uh, people involved fighting on both sides that they're uh, since they haven't really have a, a steady supply of, of blood, they've they've kind of um, they they haven't. Uh, it, it's mentioned that they haven't been feeding their ghoul horses or. Or uh, upkeeping their um, their bond with, uh, with with their steeds, uh, and I'm assuming that refers to some kind of animalism power, uh, and that's why they kind of caught off guard. But but yeah, the at least some of the Tsimich should at least after the initial shock and awe would should be able to kind of uh, reverse it at least a bit. But but yeah, it's it's still a really cool scene, which basically just these. Um, these hordes of of beasts, some of them canine, some of them uh, just plain beasts of the wood, just just overrunning the the entire fighting force. Um, uh, another thing I would <coughs> like to point out is, from from a historical perspective, uh, is that it it makes quite a lot of sense for this entire campaign to take place in winter. Yeah, uh, because yeah. a lot of a, a, a surprising amount of fighting did actually take place during the winter in during the, the medieval times because a lot of your troops would have been um, peasant levies yeah. and during yeah. the summer peasant levies are needed or peasants rather are needed to work the the fields and so if you take if if you take them away from the fields then you have less people producing food and other stuff uh, also during the winter time, uh, you have a great, uh, especially up, up in places like Sweden where you don't really have that many roads, uh, because <coughs> since the Romans didn't get here, we don't have the Roman infrastructure that is still kind of around in at least in some yeah. places. And I checked, there uh, are no Roman roads in the Siebenburgen area either. <laughs> ah, yeah, ex exactly. So, uh, but what you did uh, did have are a lot of of rivers and streams that when they are frozen over are really good to use as uh, as roads uh, you could travel by foot or you could travel by uh, by sleigh um, and and also I'm guessing that the 
uh, if at least if it's snowing and the snow hasn't been trampled and blooded, then uh, then the snow would help with reflecting moonlight and starlight so that it would be a bit easier to see. But but yeah, you would still have a problem with uh, with a nighttime battle. But um, again, it's it's a really cool image to have these two um, armies facing off against each other on and staining the the snow uh, blood red and and stuff like that. So uh, so yeah, it's uh, I I really like. Um, the the kind of battle yeah the um, visual yeah, the, the idea of it is seriously yeah. cool yeah what I don't like is that the ending is kind of anticlimactic and and as you say that if the if the players are working for Rustovich then it's kind of like why why wouldn't they Basically, it's it's Mika Vaikos giving everyone a deal that that they should be satisfied with, and or he should be willing well, to accept. I don't think anyone's going to be yeah, completely yeah, exactly. satisfied with it. Yeah, yeah, that's except that's except Mika. Distinction. Yeah, uh, but but in any way, it's it's kind of weird because if the players are on Rustovich's side, they probably shouldn't. Like they they should probably push for more, especially uh, if they have encountered uh, Vikos before and knows what kind of treacherous asshole he is. Um, and I, I don't know. For me, it, it kind of falls short because you don't have you don't really have a, a climactic battle at the end. There's there's no like um, facing down the the final champion of the opposing side or or rousing speeches uh, or, or anything like that it's it just kind of peters out and um and in 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 a way it kind of makes sense but it makes for kind of a boring boring finale to the whole story uh and and of course a, a storyteller could kind of make things work kind of by if if not by just having like one of the um Either Jurgen Rostovich saying that, well, I I will only agree to this if uh, my champion beats your champion, and then I will get this kind of thing. Uh, and you could have one of the players be one of those champions, just so that you could get a cool end scene. Yeah. Uh, or you could yeah. even have like four players fighting against four champions or anything like that. But it's uh, I don't know. It's it it just kind of. If, to, to make a really silly comparison, it's like in the end of Monty Python's Search for the Holy Grail, where you have these big battle scenes, and, and for once they manage to get hundreds of extras, and they all dressed up for battle, and just as soon as they're about to charge, they all get arrested, and, and everything just ends really abruptly. And it, I kind of felt like that. It's like, is, is this really, like, is there an epilogue that I missed, or... What the hell is going on? So, so yeah, it's it's a bit disappointing. Uh, I actually kind of like the ending, uh, sp- uh, specifically because it becomes so anticlimactic. We have had this whole build up, and then if everyone agrees to uh, Vukos's deal, then then it just ends with nobody really getting what they want except for for Vukos, and I feel that that ties into a lot of what vampire is about but i can definitely follow your take that that there's no real you, you don't get a satisfying ending you don't get that that big ending scene so uh, but that i think that's you know um 
it's it's just um we, everyone has a different uh idea of what they they think they yeah. think and, and yeah i, I just I, it I works for me your, this way yeah yeah i i see your point and i don't really have a problem in that there's no clear winner except vicus but it's still i don't know it it feels like everything that the players and i i mean the, the actual people playing yeah. not the player characters it feels like everything that they have done up until now kind of makes it's it's all been wasted or or there's yeah. there's no reason for them doing it there's there's no player agency being involved and and yeah i again i don't mind uh everything basically just um kind of it's it's not even that the status quo is is preserved but it's that that no one gets what they want but i f- still feel that it it would be it would be a better story for the players if at least they could have some kind of satisfaction if if nothing else just to to get to punch uh rostovic or jorgen or whoever they want yeah. to punch in the end just kind yeah. of like yeah, but but yeah, I, I see yeah, your point, and I don't. No, I, I, I definitely see yours as well. <laughs> so, chapter four are NPCs and some generic templates for things like knights, animals, um, that sort of thing. Nothing much to say here. They managed to avoid overpowered NPCs, but I would have liked them to have the Ventru characters' feeding restrictions listed because I think that's something that allows you to flesh them out. But otherwise, I think they've made some interesting characters that fit well into the story, so I don't really have any comments here. No, one... Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I I do like that we, we get both a Gangrel, uh, Moro, the, the leader of the Gangrel, and the Nosferatu uh, Akuji, I hope I pronounced that correctly, uh, that they look rather inhuman yeah. without yeah. looking silly. Um, and I, I also think that the uh, the La Sombra on page 86, it might just be me, but she looks to be uh, very much inspired by the looks of a young Liv Tyler, <laughs> uh, which I have no I have no complaints about. It's just an observation. Um, what, what I didn't like is, or I might just have missed it, but uh, Lord Jürgen doesn't have any have any actual stats no neither or, or neither Jürgen nor nor no Rustovich have been given stats which yeah it has its goods and its its bad sides um yeah which which is kind of weird because you do have stats for morrow and there's a scene in uh in the climax or just before it where um where morrow is facing off against Rustovich and it's kind of like yeah well if the player doesn't do anything it's gonna be a, a battle of titans and it's it's kind of hard to have a battle of titans unless you have stats for them because then you can't really know how you should describe that that fight as a storyteller so uh, but but yeah I, I can see why they wouldn't want to stat out um those two as well but yeah, to, to miss at the same to time, misquote predator if it has stats we can kill it, can kill it. yeah exactly <laughs> but i mean on the other hand if you are playing spies for Rustovich, maybe you want to try and assassinate assassinate Lord Jürgen towards the end of the last yeah, scenario yes. because if you if you manage to somehow get him on his own you're four against one there's a chance you can do it but on the other hand if they had to stat out more characters then an already somewhat large book would be even larger yeah but yeah I, I agree but it's 
what it's going to be half a page and you can just i don't know remove some of the artwork or, or some of the repetitions but, but, <laughs> yeah yeah even better uh, because speaking of repetitions we end with an appendix on managing the chronicle and this gets a bit repetitive especially when talking about what kind of characters the players can play and how they can connect with the main plot i think this is the third time where they basically say well you could be allies of Lord Jürgen, you could be spies for Rustovic, you could be independents looking for power. So you've said this before, you don't really need to say it again. Uh, it also offers ideas for things to happen between the various chapters of the book, which is really nice because it, it I mean, there, there's a, a large amount of years that passes by, so it's, it's nice to get some suggestions on what you could uh, you could do. But it still doesn't solve the problem with the second scenario feeling really disjointed from the rest of them. But otherwise, the suggestions, um, including you know Fallout, what could happen afterwards, I think they're they're quite good. Yeah, I agree. And uh, the actual advice that they give on how to run the uh, the chronicle and how to um, include uh, or give reasons why the, the player characters are included aren't bad, but, but as you mentioned it, uh, they're kind of repetitive, and I, I also kind of question the fact that the, the managing the chronicle section is at the very yeah. end of the book, uh, which is, I don't know, it's just a weird editing choice, I think. Um, but but yeah, there, there are a lot of like nice little storytelling advices here and, and uh, here and there or, or kind of um in in the first two chapters you have like um sidebars with rumors that that yeah. players can pick those up just good. by interacting with those others and yeah those are really good and you also have some interesting uh, mechanics on the uh on on the piece of the true cross uh for how that could work which is uh i, I really kind of like that 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 they hint that well Every Knight knows that holy shit. This is a really—it's—it's <laughs> it's almost literally holy shit because it's so powerful. But you know that players probably just want to sneak a peek and just unwrap it and just take a look at it. And if you do, there's going to be consequences, uh, which I think is is a nice little touch um, to that. Um, but but yeah, overall, uh, besides the repetition and this being. Uh, in the end instead of the beginning i i approve of this yeah. chapter so judging this book on its historical merits i think it does a it does great when it comes to portraying real life events except for the slip up with bran castle however the javelin part of the tournament was weird and a lot of the weapons and armor portrayed in the art as i've mentioned it's either out of date or fantasy and it's a bit sad because this is a book that focuses a lot on combat on war and conflict so i i would have liked some more uh historically accurate weapons and armor but it's it's a small complaint so so historically there's there's a few things to mention but i think we've we've mentioned most of them if not all so um as a chronicle well apart from the fact the fact that the um acre chapter felt somewhat out of place i think it's pretty good though i would not give players as much freedom in character creation as the book suggests it really uh, struggles to make sense if the characters are agents of rustovich as we've mentioned before but i could see myself running this for a group that is set up to at least normally support lord jürgen and i've used the uh, acre chapter 
as the basis for a book that I'm writing for Storytellers Vault called Fall of Acre, which chronicles the fall of Acre. Uh, it falls to the Muslims in 1291. So hopefully that book will be out at the beginning of the new year. So if anybody's interested in seeing my take on that, um, I'll let you know when the book comes out. So all in all, what did you think of this? I, I think we've, we're both kind of in agreement on, on the good parts and the bad parts about it. Uh, it's it's a bit Vampire to Dark Ages goes Warhammer at times, but but on the same time, uh, I really like the kind of uh, not only the animalistic gangrel that attack, but also the the kind of um, the bloodhounds and the flesh beasts and and the war ghouls of uh, of the Tzimich. Uh, they I, I really like those parts. Uh, there are some like the ending is is a bit weak and as you mentioned the uh the the second chapter is i i would feel that it would it, it's it's a good enough story to deserve its own uh not necessarily a chronicle but at least it's its own uh, story uh, as a separate piece uh what i really like about this is that we have uh, a lot of inter uh, vampire conflict we have uh, uh, one part set in uh, in the Crusader states, and there's a lot of, of like backstabbing and holy relics and things like that. And there's not a single Bali among the NPCs; <laughs> they're completely out of it. Uh, because I was in, I, I was kind of just waiting for for some of them to just know. And of course, the reason why why the aura falls is because the Bali has defiled something or other. But there's nothing like that, and I love it. Um, <laughs> Well, so, yeah, from, in, in, from in that, that case, you won't like Fall of Acre because uh, we we start out with some Bali. <laughs> ah, okay. Well, as as long as you don't finish with no, them, no, no, or at least that they no, get no. to come up and then then it's gonna be yeah. fine. But but yeah, I I, uh, I liked it, and um, if if I would have run this as um, uh, as a storyteller, uh, I I would agree with you that I would probably restrict the kind of characters. Uh, allowed to play and depending on uh, i i would ha either have like a session zero with my players try to figure out making sure that each character fits in or i would pre-make uh, a handful of characters like if i have four players i would probably make eight characters and then just have have people uh, pick and choose which they find mo most interesting mm. and then they can just put their own finishing touches on them like yeah, this this is the knight. If you want to be a Teutonic knight or or a knight Templar, doesn't really matter. But this is the knight character. Yeah. This is the sneaky hide and and so on and so on. Um, but but yeah, there's there's a, a few things that you you need to kind of fix with this chronicle. I think. Yeah. So. This is it, the end of season one of the World of Dark Ages podcast. Apart from Transylvania Chronicles, which we will return to once I have played further in the books, we've covered the entire line. That means we will return with season two, covering Dark Ages second edition. But we don't know exactly when that will be. The core book is big and we'll need some time to prepare, plus there might be some other changes coming. However, we will have at least one side quest between now and the start of season two. Uh, so I hope you've enjoyed the first season at, and that you will return once we return. And with that, Peter, do you have any last comments before we sign off? No, just 
thanking all our listeners and our patrons and our new patrons. Thanks again. Uh, if you haven't checked out the, the special episode that's up on, on the patron site, uh, please do. And if you like it, let us know. If you don't like it, please let us know as well. Uh, there, I'll probably make uh, another episode uh, quite shortly. I can't really promise when that is, uh, but hopefully before, uh, before Christmas. Uh, and yeah, again, thanks everyone for listening and everyone for supporting us and for all the lovely comments and discussions that we have on the Facebook group. Thank you. Yes. And so it is goodbye from me, Jacob. And from me, Peter. Farewell and see you next time. Bye.